and welcome to the Tent Podcast. That is to say, thriving in technology. Your hosts are Sam Moulton and Cecilia Taylor, members of the Influence Marketing Team at NetApp. We recorded this episode during NetApp Insight Conference in Las Vegas. We're excited to have a special guest joining us, Karen Lopez. Karen is an independent analyst with an extensive background in development processes and information management. Karen is the author of the Info Advisors blog on datamodel.com, a blog designed to help readers get the most out of data and information assets. Let's get started, shall we? We're sitting here today, here at NetApp Insight 2019. Uh, with our special guest, Karen Lopez, as well as your hosts, ever-present, Sam Moulton and Cecilia Taylor. Thank you and welcome, Karen, to our podcast. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Well, Thank we you. are pleased that you were able to take the time. I know that you have been kept very busy here at yep. NetUp Insight with a packed schedule. Mm-hmm. So we are glad that you were able to take this time. We would like you to tell us a little bit more about where our listeners can find you and a little bit about what you do. Okay, so this is cool. So I'm Karen Lopez. I'm Data Chick on Twitter, and I tweet a lot. <laughs> I've um, heard. Yeah. <laughs> or I've seen, I should yeah, say. Yeah, exactly. Um, I really enjoy. Twitter is like carrying all my friends in my pocket with me as I travel. So that's one of the reasons I like why that. I tweet. Yes. I like that. Yeah. Traveling airports are kind of lonely, even though they're packed. Yeah. So having some people to talk to while you're in a busy airport's good. Um, I blog at datamodel.com, where I mo- write mostly about um, data trends and strategy, sometimes about actual data modeling and technical things. Um, but that's pretty much where to find me. I'm, I'm Data Chick on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn and all those fun things too. So that's nice that you're able to carry that same Data Chick moniker throughout the different platforms. Makes it easy to Uh, for people to find you? Yeah, in most places I can do that. And there's kind of a story behind the Data Chick name. So I started my career, um, of course, early 20s. My first job out of school was working in the Defense Department in the U.S. Oh. And I worked on the Strategic Defense Initiative, so Star Wars. Uh, So here I am, blonde, 20-year-old, um, working in a predominantly male industry of defense, of space weapons, um, and also working in IT, with predominantly male, especially in the 80s. Um, and women on my projects didn't have names. We, we were, what do you mean by that? Well, you referred to men on your project by their names. Okay. But women, I was just one of the data chicks. Oh. So one of the women who took care of data modeling and data requirements and those things. And then I did some work on computer-aided logistics, or CALS, and those women were known as CALS gals. And being 20, I was the smartest person in the room. So <laughs> Of course you were. Of course <laughs> I was. So I fought it constantly. My name is Karen. My name is Karen. You can call me Karen. You can call me Ms. Lopez, but call me Karen. Mm-hmm. And um, that didn't go over well with a lot of people who are used to call it, you know, the, the oddity of a female 
working on your project. And so when it came time to um, come up with a Twitter ID by the time I joined all the social media things, if you have a last name like Lopez, most yeah. of the most of your name IDs are gone. Or taken, yes. And I kept thinking, well, what, what, what would I take? I mean, I could be like Karen3264 or something. Right, and right. I was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. So I, I thought back and I thought, you know what? I want to reclaim that word. You're going to embrace mm-hmm. I'm going to embrace it. Yeah. And I'm going to be data chick. And, you know, sometimes I get a little bit of negative feedback about it, like using the word chick or mm-hmm. girl and everything. But then I get to tell this story about how I'm reclaiming what was, you know, it wasn't so much an intentional aggression. Mm-hmm. It was a type of microaggression yes. that... You know, women didn't deserve, women on projects were such an anomaly, they didn't need names. You and so some of the women on the project team, they embraced these things. Like they got t-shirts that were pink that said cows gals. They got data chick, I can't remember what. Tattooed, maybe. Yeah. Well, maybe not in the eighties. <laughs> no, like, right, that wasn't right, that wasn't that's true. and especially true. in the military. Okay. That wasn't allowed <laughs> okay. and wasn't respected. I take it back. Yeah. <laughs> but now that's a good idea. Now yeah. I want to get one. Yeah, okay. That <laughs> so, sounds good. Um so I have this data chick name and I still love it because it embraces the fact in a what I think is a lighthearted way of yeah. saying, Yes, I'm a woman in technology and I'm all about data and that's my shtick. That's what I want to embrace. Well, I, I've always thought it was cool, and now it's, like, super cool. Yeah. Because I, mean, I had no idea there was such a great story yeah. behind this. Yeah. All right. So you talked a little bit about your 20s and what yeah. you were doing back then. Yeah. So how did you get where you are today? Okay. Well, I guess I should say where I am today. That's, so a, that's a good start. That's a good start. Yeah. So we'll work from there. Okay. So I'm attending this as an independent analyst. Mm-hmm. And like most independent analysts, it means I also have a job as a consultant. Mm-hmm. Like I actually still do work. And I primarily do project management and data management um, with a focus on troubled projects. Um, and because I what say do you project. Mean by that? Yeah. Well, I want to say I say project because I'm based in Toronto. <laughs> Even though no, sir. I started my work in the U.S., but I started working in Canada, I was doing project and process management training, mm-hmm. and I switched. And now I can't go back and forth, so that's where I am. Um, but uh, what did you ask me now? I've forgotten already. <laughs> I asked you uh, to oh, tell us a little project. bit about how you got where you are. Yes, right. Uh, but we're going to start with where you are and then go backwards. Yeah. Okay, yeah. how's that? Yeah. So the... The troubled projects thing is that I help teams that have gotten so far down a path that they can't get into production. So whether they're doing development or a migration, and they just can't get it all the way there. So there are other people that specialize on troubled projects because they're over budget or, you know, past schedule or something. But there are other people to solve those problems. I've I've never heard this expression, trouble projects. Oh, yeah. It's been going on. Matter of fact, uh, Project Management Institute used to have a a SIG on troubled projects. So it's kind of a classic study. I mean, it happens in engineering and architecture as well. But it really means, like some people, you know, there's stats that go around that say that 75% of all projects fail. And it's not that they fail. It's that they don't come in on budget and on schedule. And we know this. And they sometimes get abandoned. And they sometimes get abandoned. Like that's ultimately. So I specialize in projects that just can't even get into product. They can't get it to work for lots of different reasons. And 
that's happened through word of mouth. And the reason I got there is when I started my career in the defense world, I was a methodologist, which is kind of a negative word now. Like I don't use that anymore. But it just meant I helped teams find the right tools, the right processes that matches the cost, benefit, and risk of the project they're doing. Mm -hmm. Because no matter what anyone tells you, there's no single approach or process that works for every project. And that's kind of what I specialize in. And a lot of teams that get down this road where they can't get into production is because their development process or their deployment process didn't fit what they were trying to do. And a lot of times it's their design also didn't fit what they're trying to do. So I'm, I'm dying to hear like an example of this because I'm, <laughs> I, you know, I'm having a little trouble grasping yeah. it because this is all foreign for me. So okay. do you have a, a recent example or an interesting example of I have a couple. Okay, cool. So one of them was I was brought in because someone was using a large commercial relational database, but they were using it as if it was not a relational database. So they were putting all their data into one big giant table. And it was failing because these, this tool, this relational database system was not designed to have workloads going against one table. And They had done that because they had this misconception that never having to change your database is the ultimate goal. So if you just put all the data in one big pile, and we have non-relational databases that work pretty much that way, but they were using the wrong tool, the wrong architecture for that tool, and they couldn't. They were supposed to have like 300,000 users with 30,000 concurrent users, and they couldn't even get two people logged in at the same time. Wow. Because, and you know, and I'm doing all these other risk assessments, saying things like, "Well, you'll never be able to back it up. You'll never be able. It'll. It won't perform well because you've got all your data in one column. You can't have an in like." So they so they brought you in knowing that there was a problem, but then they were kind of resistant to oh, what you were terribly so because they were proud of this innovative design that no one else had ever thought of. And I'm a huge <laughs> fan of innovation. <laughs> yeah, but if, if it this, doesn't work if it, for you, yes. is it really that innovative? No, it wasn't. <laughs> and it was all because they had been given the technical architecture; they didn't have a chance to change it. And no SQL or non-relational databases were brand new. They weren't. As, you know, known or embraced at the time because they were so new, so immature. But they had to develop for this relatively stable traditional architecture that just this misconception that changing a database was a bad thing, yet those of us who work in the data world know that you change. There's a cost to change, yeah. but you change them all the time. Yeah. And on top of it, it was in an industry that for the most part still works on mainframes. So... It wasn't that there were a lot of changes in the industry that were happening. I mean, it had normal industry change, but it was just so bizarre that they had decided on this goal that had nothing to do with the project. It was just an interesting thing they wanted to do. So how did you uh, convince them or how did you talk them into uh, making this change that you knew would benefit them yeah. in the long run? So I had a hard time with the development team. Like They were very much committed. They had been working... But management was really interested because they had they were building software as a service to sell to other companies, and they had a million dollar a month penalty for every month they were oh late, my. and they they can't get into production. It's December, and they're supposed to deliver this highly scalable giant system, lots of users, 
five nines uptime, which was not going to happen, in the next six months. And I had to go to management and say, even if we start now, you just need to budget for that million dollars a month because, first of all, you don't have the right architects. You haven't defined what your technical goals are. You know what your business goals are. But it's just a classic project management problem that cost, benefit, and risk analyses weren't done at any time. And you really have to do all three of those to design an architecture for something. This just sounds... I mean, I think to myself, how could this have happened? I mean, were they maybe led to believe this tool did something it didn't by the people they bought it from? No, because they were, they were all invested in in this relational database system, and they had used it throughout their organization. It, oh, in per, different ways. They were in, using it in different ways. In the okay. right way, they oh, were okay. using it. But they okay. decided that, so it's, this, it's part ego, and it's part... Um, Ignorance, and I don't mean stupid, I mean literally not knowing. Yeah. So they yep, didn't yep. have any database experts on their teams. They were agile, they were developers. Um, some um, spins on agile development are you're not allowed to have any specialists on your team, everyone has to be a generalist. But if you just did the math, like I, when I wrote my first report for management, I'm like, this table's going to have 400 quadrillion rows in it. 400 quadrillion rows is a giant table. And it turns out that number was way too low because they had given me, they didn't even know how many types of data. They hadn't even counted it. Because when you put all your data in one table, you don't have to know what the data is ahead of time. And so, like, the solution to this was you have two choices. Take a very high risk, go find a NoSQL database that can do this, or go back and redesign your system to use traditional relational database development techniques, and off we go. So I said high risk, high cost, many more unknowns, no experience in it, or leverage the people and the tools you already have and do it the right way. And that's the path we went down. Okay, so let me ask you this. Was there... The opposition that you mentioned you know, was, was happening initially mm-hmm. when you were telling them that their baby was ugly. Yeah, um, basically. Did, did, did any of that have to do with the fact that a woman was telling this team mm-hmm. that they, had, they were not doing things the way that they needed yes. to be done? So there were a couple people definitely like that. I, my credentials were constantly being questioned. But the good news is being in this industry for a long time and fairly well connected and networked, which a lot of women aren't, like I just have this privilege where I can go to shows, where I can meet people, where I meet industry leaders in all of these things. So I went to the top three industry leaders in this relational database system, wrote a couple paragraphs and said, what would you tell people to do? And people are like, don't do that. But Mm -hmm. the big names, who were all men, Mm -hmm. basically, I paid them and said, do this analysis based on this. I just need, would you pursue this? And every single one of them said no. Once I brought back those uh, affirmations, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I'm not sure that, I mean, they might have asked a man to do that. But I think they were more surprised that I knew these industry celebrities well enough that that I could get get the connection. Get get the connection get the questions exactly. answered. And so that helped. And then there was, you know, a product owner, a product manager and owner who just fought me all the way. He's like, we can't change things. We can't change things because we have to be in production. I'm like, 
you're never going to go into production. <laughs> yeah. If we don't change things, you're yeah. never going to get yeah. there. <laughs> and so, yes, that million dollars a month is going to be very painful for management. But the longer we fight on this, it's another month. It's another month. And I told them, like, one of the things you did, you sold five nines availability. I mean, that's like, I forget what Nearly that is. impossible. Well, for the one thing is they only had one server, oh, and there's absolutely no, and so I would say even I know that that okay, would be a problem. Exactly, okay. and I said you can't have five nines availability with one server, one piece of hardware, and he said, but you're not a, a scalability expert. No, but I know like <laughs> physics, <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 and first of all. I don't like I don't think you did you didn't do any cost analysis about how much five nines availability. Like you've yeah, you've sold that. But now someone's gonna have to invest the money and no one's told management that this one server is not going to meet these needs. Forget performance, it's not gonna meet the performance goals, but it's literally not gonna meet the high availability goals that you've set for it. It just physically cannot. And then it'd be like, oh, well, you're not an expert in this. Okay, let me go track down my experts. Oh, there you right? go again. Yeah. Okay. And so... It, you are fortunate then that you have this network. Now, yes. how long ago did this occur? Is this something um, fairly recent? Yeah, like six years Shoot. ago, okay. seven years so ago. It's, have you noticed any improvement in that span of time where you don't have to go to those experts as often? Um, I tend to go to experts anyway as soon as Just my credentials okay. are are questioned. Okay. Like it is nice to be able to pick up the phone and or send an email, mm. say, Hi, I haven't seen you for a while. I've got this interesting question. Or I might tweet about it and say, Hey, did you want to jump in on this conversation on Twitter? You know, okay. and a lot of times that's enough for people. Okay. Right? That's cool. That's a nice way of using yeah. the social platforms to benefit, you know, yeah. the, the work that you do. Yeah. Yeah. And then I say, if you disagree with me, tell me. Like, that's the other thing. Like, yeah, we're all proud of our work. But if an expert who, in something I'm not an expert in, uh -huh. comes in and says, oh, yeah, well, yeah, someone's doing that right now. Then my next question would be, how much are they paying to make that work? <laughs> yeah. I love the, the ability to, to source Twitter for, oh, uh, yeah. for ideas, for uh, feedback, yep. for uh, input. Yep. Um, how... Other than using it in that way, mm -hmm. how do you use Twitter on a oh daily gosh. basis? Like every minute of the day? Oh, I know that's much. where that was leading because I tweet a lot. Um, so there's this great thing um, where I do ask questions on Twitter when I need help with something or people ask me. And one of the things I think is amazing about Twitter, so I years and years ago, I ran these uh, mailing lists for data management, data modeling tools, data architecture, Zachman framework, that kind of stuff. Those are closed systems. It built a great community, but it's a distribution list, right? Mm -hmm. You send it out to this closed there's list no and people... It, it can't grow. But the great thing about social media is you have this social graph, like the math of the social graph, that people see me talking with someone and then they can jump in. It's like a world's largest cocktail party. You just wander around and have these conversations. I've made such great connections there. Like one of the things I do, I'm a huge space exploration fan. So you see a lot of, you know, chatting with people that I would never, ever have the opportunity to chat with. Like I wouldn't send them an email. They wouldn't respond, they're too busy. But the fact that I can talk to Nobel laureates and astronauts and cosmonauts and even people who are in space right now, I mean, that's just exciting for me that I never would have imagined would have been available to me growing up at all. 
growing up in Midwestern U.S. with very few connections, you know, other than very isolated cultures, you know, mm-hmm. you know your neighbors, you know your friends, you had enough friends, but the social graph for me is just these connections that are very organic, right? You connect with someone not because you followed them, but right. because you had a discussion with them. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's why I'm so heavy into Twitter, even with all the downsides that sometimes happen. Yes, but, there's but a still, lot of there's yeah. a lot of negativity that you can live yes. with. Um, yeah, and unfortunately, sometimes conversations can spiral. Yep. out of way off of the original subject. Yes, <laughs> but sometimes but, that's good too. They can right. spiral off in a good way, right? That's true. And um, you know, so where did your interest in space exploration? Oh come my from? gosh. Well, having grown up in the 60s, first of all. And second, um, I was invited by NASA at one point. So, oh, my first job on Star Wars, Chris had me working at Space Division in Los Angeles and in the Pentagon. And so that was initially that. And then I got kind of turned off of government contracting, which was a little bit on the dark side. But then I got invited by NASA to attend... Uh, she got sec- invited by NASA. <laughs> how many people can say that? I, I love how she can casually NASA. say yeah. it, though. You know, <laughs> to NASA. do um, a uh, to attend the second to last shuttle launch from the countdown clock. So there were about 150 people that got invited to do that, and some really exciting, either famous people or just the world's interesting people. Like I still stay in contact, and that's been years now, right? With these people who attended it because it was such a thing. Well, then I I stayed close to the people doing social media and everything. And then NASA has done for the last few years, this Space Ops Challenge, which is the world's largest global hackathon. And they started it after they started these social outreach programs to bring, to do tweet ups. Now they call them um, socials, NASA socials. But the woman who was working on it, who did the social stuff, noticed that when they first started this hackathon, that there were very few women and minorities attended. So she started a program called NASA Data Knots, of which I'm a mentor in now. And it was going to be like learn to code, but learn to work with data, NASA open data. So what happened was this NASA Data Knots, the first class was all women, and then they opened it up to everybody. And now it's just exploded into this. There are people with PhDs in data science and people who have never done any computing at all working together with NASA Open Data. So that hackathon that just started out, little local thing, it was just last weekend. There were 28,000 participants worldwide in more than 200 cities around the world, and then there's virtual participants and the data knots are invited to help mentor people and help sort of get the subject matter experts to get their questions get everyone's questions answered via the social uh, the uh, subject matter experts and I just I'm I mean that's space and data like you can't combine things that is for me but you know it's just been this so now this has exploded into this I go to the European space agencies the Japanese space agencies the French space agencies and learn things from them and then they get you know Twitter influence and kind of like being an independent analyst the same sort of thing now can is this can you monetize this work or is this just something you're doing Um, it because you're passionate about it mostly doing it because sometimes I get writing opportunities or mm-hmm. presentation opportunities to talk about some of these programs, but it's mostly my passion because designing the perfect uh, invoice has gotten kind of old for me. <laughs> so, oh, geez, I don't, I don't understand why. <laughs> so, uh, 
we talked about your love of data and your love of space. Yeah. Do you have any other passions that are not related that you would love to share with us? When okay. would she have time? I know. I'm just wondering. So I tell well, you people no. Well, I'm a chronic volunteer, so I do all kinds of things like that. But I guess outside of space and data, I'm, I like to call myself a wannabe runner. So um, half marathons are my go-to distance. Oh, I have to draw in space, though, because there's a Space Coast half that I'm doing in a couple weeks in Florida. A a Space Coast? Half marathon. Oh, okay. So So you're able to combine space, data, and and running running all together. (laughs) There is. So, um, and they do a great little local, it's one of the best races ever, and, you know, it's all in and everything. But I running, because I travel, you know, you don't have to bring equipment, running shoes, which take up yeah. half your carry-on. But yeah. but still, it, yeah. it's like running and yoga. Like, that's my shtick for things I do. I wish I was better at it as I get older. I'm not getting any better. But it's a good, for me, it's like testing myself. Like, I'm not competing. I don't, I know what my personal records are, but I'm not. I'm not trying to You're win. Not fixated on I'm that. I'm not. I'm yeah. fixed on and getting it done. So mm-hmm. I've done a few marathons. I've done maybe, I think, 27 half marathons, and that's what I do. Mm. Excellent. So we talked a lot about the beginning of your career, and then we talked about some other things. But what's your, you know, day-to-day life like as <laughs> Karen Lopez, independent <laughs> analyst? Well, I do a lot of what I call the W's, the webinars, white papers, and workshops. Okay, W's, um, I like it. Yeah. (laughs) So not the five W's, the questions, but, um, you know, I've been going through what I call this career midlife crisis, like where you work on troubled projects and they're often like 60, 70 hours a week. And they're very emotionally, because you're trying to tell someone their baby's ugly. um, And it takes a a lot of emotional work and mental work to get them to trust you that -hmm. that you're going to help them decide what their path is. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't come in and say, like, you do this, you do that. It's just trying to get them on the right path. And so I used to take, you know, I would do that for half a year or a year or more. And then I mean, I, can, can you work on the same project for that long sometimes? Yes. Oof. Yes. Okay. Sometimes two or three years. Wow. And it's just... That many hours yes. a week yes. for that long. Yeah. Oof. And then okay. you want to take time off, mm-hmm. right? So I would do that. And, and for some of them that were really emotionally draining and a lot of work, like I would take six or eight months just doing webinars, white papers, and workshops. So... You know, I, I think it's like... So who hires you to do those things? Um, enterprises, mostly. Sometimes okay. software companies, but okay. mostly enterprise um, because, uh, you know, they want coaching. They, it's not, you don't outsource someone fixing your project. You get someone to come. Like, I think of the role as a coach. Okay. Sometimes I have a little bit more authority if things are like the million dollar a month project mm-hmm. um, where I just say, no, we're not doing this. And then everyone's running to the executives telling them why I'm wrong. But They're tattling on you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the executives didn't really want to hear all this news. But at the end, they knew mm-hmm. that if they had stayed on that path before, they, their project, they just it just would have been a failure, a total fail. Um but, other, you know, it's that there's all this emotional work of getting people to trust you when they inherently don't want to trust you. Mm-hmm. And well, because you're telling them something they don't want to hear. Right. And you also have to tell them that you're wrong. You did something wrong, but without telling them that. And that's, that's, that's hard. I, I have a hard time with that, yes. as Cecilia knows. It's one of my 
things that I are my challenges. Yes. Um, running the A team uh, yeah. when an A team member isn't quite meeting expectations. Yeah. It's very hard oh, it's to very have hard. that discussion. Yeah. So as you're talking, I'm thinking you're talking about being drained and the emotional yeah. toll. Yeah. Um, we like to talk about whether people are introverted or extroverted yes. because that has a bearing on things. So where where, yeah. do you, where do you land? So it was interesting. There was an interesting tweet, and I wish I could remember who it is, but I reshared it just yesterday or today that talked about, you know, we should drop this uh, binary introverted, extroverted. It's just everyone has their own own comfort level about how many people they can interact with for mm-hmm. in a set amount of time uh-huh. and how much noise they can interact mm-hmm. with in a set amount of time and everyone just needs to make sure they understand that level and that's also something I try to do on my projects like instead of just constantly say you guys screwed up is I say you know what would take this pain away what if we did this you know you guys are preparing these models and yes it's part of object-oriented development to do these models and everything, but we're not using them. So what if I just take that pain away and just because some methodology says you should do these, no one's using them. Let's take that pain away and free up your time. And they'll be like, but that's not agile. And I'm like, the good news is we're not being graded on how agile we are. Like, we'll just believe in some of the concepts of it and we're going to make everything fit. And so it's more like, you know, trying to hang something shiny in front of people to find what they're passionate about. And sometimes you have to have those hard discussions with management, though. This person is, this, these, this person's actions are what's keeping us from getting on the right path. Mm-hmm. And that's the hardest one for me as an outsider because I'm not a manager. Mm-hmm. I want to say, you know, so you need to go coach him in an HR way or her. And I'm going to work on trying to find fit to their passion, but sometimes that can't be done and everyone just sort of has to come to that realization because you do you connect with people on social platforms you obviously do a lot of interacting with them in person as well but you know this kind of an event for me Mm-hmm. I, it will take me a long time to recover yeah. from this because yeah. it is there is so much noise and noise and you're you want to be your best self so you're putting yourself out there yeah. and you're having all these conversations so mm-hmm. you travel a lot you do these things yeah. a lot what's your secret to bouncing back so there's a couple I, there's things I know I should do that I don't <laughs> like go for a run like all of that stuff mm-hmm. um, but. I specifically try to find time, like usually like at the end of the day between the last session and when everybody's meeting up for dinner or the social event to go sit in my hotel room with the shades drawn, the mm-hmm. lights out, and quiet. Mm-hmm. And I might be tweeting because mm-hmm. that helps me relax, mm-hmm. but that lack of noise, like noise is a big yeah. thing yes. for me. Mm-hmm. And um, talking and meeting to people and going up to people and asking them a question at a booth, like that's kind of hard for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a little intimidating. It can be, yes. right? Yeah. I know lots In of fact, people have no problem. My, just made my yes. palms sweat a little yes. bit. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So I find that taking that, hopefully it's an hour, but usually it's 20 minutes or mm-hmm. something. Or even if there's a break during the day of going, finding chairs off some long hallway mm-hmm. and then security's like, can I help you? And I'm like, <laughs> no. Just need to be just quiet for a little, a little bit. Need a little quiet. So that helps me. Um, noise canceling headphones too. Mm-hmm. Um, I've learned to use those when I travel. And uh, I really fought it because there are big things to carry around right. and right. I try to travel light. But really just being able to sit in an airport with a little bit of noise canceling, that helps me too. All right, but now you get home, mm-hmm. and then what? 
what, oh. what, what do you, you know, once you get home? Well, when I get home, I have to do my work. That's uh, the other thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> right? But you can do that in quiet. But I mean, is, I there, is there a recovery period that you have to go um, through? Or There is. Like typically, like, so this has been a shorter travel time. Mm-hmm. So maybe I won't need as much. And I have a bunch of stuff that I have to deliver on Friday. So oh, I know what my Friday okay. is going to be. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's kind of like if I can, that first day back is my day of sofa. <laughs> I love that. Like, yeah, we, we we appreciate that. Our beds or our yeah, sofas. Yeah. yeah, my pillow, my bed, yeah. my cat. Like, <laughs> yeah. those are the things yeah. I usually tweet. Um, but, you know, everyone needs to find those things and then invest in the time to do that. Like, people talk about self-care. I was just going to say, and, you're talking about self-care. Yeah, yeah. but I, I do it in little tiny pieces. Like, I can't turn off my brain from the deliverables I have to take a whole weekend off. That's really a failure of mine. But... That oh, Saturday. I don't, that's a, I don't know if you should classify that as a failure. Well, it's, I really should stop planning on working all weekend. But I do that to deal with the stress of having a deliverable. Oh, right. I'll have all this time on Saturday. No phone calls, no conference calls. Mm-hmm. And then Saturday, next thing well, I that's know. That's the life of a, you know, not a, not a freelancer per se. Yeah, but oh, if it it's is. your own yeah. business, then you can't afford to not make those deliverables mm-hmm. That's and, or, right. you know, in a, in a timely way. So, And as I tell people, my boss is really mean to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, because it can be a feast or famine thing, right? Yes, I mean, yeah. sometimes you have a lot to do and then other times yeah. not so much. And then you're probably anxious about the fact that you don't have as much. Yeah, right? that happens. You got to go out and that find happens. the, new, the yeah. new business. Or, or I know I have friends, their family members are putting that pressure on them and don't allow them. Like I kept telling people who were new consulting, like, you need to plan for not being billable between gigs. Like, you need to plan your finances. You need to plan because consulting and contracting is different than an employee. You have to, like, everyone works hard, but you have to work hard to take care of yourself. And you have to be your own manager, your own HR person, your own, usually, admin person, like, everything. Mm-hmm. And so, but I, I just highly encourage people, like, take a month off between gigs. That doesn't mean you're sitting on the sofa. You should be learning, getting a certification, reading, studying, playing with some subscription to something. Like, that's what I mean by a month off. Like, just don't try to be billable every single work day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Typically, we'll have a question that we just throw out, which is more of a fun question. Okay. And I've been sitting here wondering what that question should be for you. <laughs> we all have something that's on our bucket list of something that we would oh really gosh. like to do. Like climbing you know, Mount Everest. <laughs> yes. You know, we, that no. is, that yeah. is not on not, my bucket that, list. That's not on my bucket list. <laughs> so it might not be on your bucket list. Uh-huh. But I'm going to ask you, Sam, first. Ooh, I get okay, to go first. Um, what, and I can tell you what's on my bucket list. Okay. Uh, I've always wanted to see the Northern Lights in person. Oh. I just want to see them. Yeah. I've seen them from and, my own backyard. Oh my god! So oh my cool. goodness! I know. Oh, we're gonna come and we're gonna go and visit Karen soon. <laughs> and, and so it's something it I've always nice. wanted to do. Yeah. So I just wanted to know, you know, what is on your bucket list mm-hmm. right now? Because and I realize that that changes over time. It, it does. does. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, yes, it does. It wow, does. that was cool. Well, one that has remained on mine. Um, I love zoos. Oh. I know that you know there are some people who mm-hmm. believe that. Uh, keeping animals in captivity is cruel, but what they do for endangered species Mm -hmm. is just an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. And my plan is, you know, someday when I have all this time on my hands, uh, you know, when I retire, uh, whatever, I would like to visit the top 
10 zoos in the world. Oh, nice. Wherever they are. I want to spend the time to research which, you know, oh. which zoos we'd want to go to. Yeah. Um, I'd want to go to. Did I say we? Well, maybe I'll take yeah. the husband along. Who knows? <laughs> but, but anyway, that's, that's, that's for me is, would be just um, an amazing adventure. Excellent. I live next to the Toronto Zoo. Oh, yeah. Now, would that be one of the top ten? Would you say? I, I, I think it's got good grades. Okay. I think so. Mm-hmm. And um, another reason to go visit her. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Oh gosh, what's my bucket? I mean, I feel obligated to say my bucket list would be to go to space sometime. I don't. I was know. wondering if you would want to go up to. So, yeah. I mean, with the advent of uh, space tourism that's mm-hmm. going to be happening, I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime, but. You know, if I ever got the opportunity, for sure. Well, I think what's-his-name uh, is hoping it's going to happen soon. Um, Richard Branson. Yes, yes Yeah, that's right, what I figured. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of players that have come and gone. Mm-hmm. Um, some real ones and fake ones um, that took a lot of money. Um, but that would be interesting to me. It would be to go to space. I, like I said, not so much as a worker astronaut, but as a tourist, that would be really cool. Um, some of the other things are just, so I've, been, I've started this quest now of, there's a century club for people who have been to all the countries of the world, which is kind of an odd list. It's curated, there's a club, it is, um, you know, more than 100 countries but on, on the list. So I'm only about maybe 40 or 50 countries in. Goodness, and that's pretty impressive though. Well, well, travel for speaking and yeah. working, and yeah. and I don't count layovers. Like, if I didn't leave yeah. the airport, I'm not it counting count. it. Um, but, you know, that sounds like a good goal that mm-hmm. also would have to be work-related. I mean, I recently, like, this year I knocked off a whole bunch just because I went on a cruise of the med that ended up yeah. hitting a yeah. lot I hadn't hit before. And then I do speaking tours in Asia at least once a year. Um, and then as people refer to the small countries in Europe. So I like going to speak at events that aren't just in London, Toronto, San Francisco, New York, or Vegas. Mm-hmm. Um to support local communities because a lot of time, you know, people can't get to Vegas and San Francisco and New York all the time. So that's my, that's sort of, I don't know if it's really a bucket list, but it's kind of a goal to finish this. And then there's, I mean, there's other ones. There's like people who run a marathon in every state. I'm not going to do that. That does not sound appealing to me at all. (laughs) Mm -mm. Well, but there are half marathons where you, there's something called um, half fanatics where you get these levels based on how many states, provinces, and countries that you've run half marathons on. So I'd like to, you know, get high up in that. But that's not the amount of so much, but how often. So there are levels that are like if you run more than 52 half marathons a year. I don't know that I'll ever be doing that. but That's one a week. Yes. Yeah. And there are people who do it a lot. Like I've got a running friend. He runs two or three every weekend. Now, he lives in Southern California where there are two or three to run every weekend. Mm-hmm. There aren't that many in yeah. Toronto, yeah. especially in the winter. Yeah. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for Thank taking you. the time. And, and I know you're, they booked you well for this conference. <laughs> so we really appreciate you sitting down with us. It's been our great. little podcast cone. It was we just so much, so much fun to get to know you. Yeah, and thank you. I just and you really guys. appreciate what you do. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. 
Well, that's a wrap for this episode of The Tent Podcast from Las Vegas. We'd like to thank Karen for joining us today. To our listeners out there, we know you have a bunch of podcasts you could be listening to, so we appreciate the time you take to spend with us. We hope you'll add us to your must-listen queue of podcasts. We'd love to hear your feedback. What works? What doesn't? What would you like to hear about in our next episode? We encourage you to email us at ng-tentpodcast at it netapp.com with your comments and questions. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.